I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, in 2015, the Obama White House negotiated a deal with the Iranians known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. It was a detailed 159-page agreement reached by Iran, China, France, Germany, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. The nuclear deal was endorsed by the UN Security Council Resolution 2231 and adopted on July 20, 2015. Iran's compliance with the JCPOA was verified by the International Atomic Energy Agency. The deal basically stopped Iran from building their own nuclear bombs. Now the Biden administration is trying to renegotiate the 2015 deal, but there's only one problem. They were not invited to the negotiating table. The Iranians did not want them there, and the Biden administration agreed incredibly and instead relied on intermediaries. Now the deal is almost done, and it is apparent that the Russians and the Chinese may benefit from the deal, which begs the question, why is the United States a part of it? Here to provide more context on the new Iran nuclear deal negotiations, I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President at the American Foreign Policy Council, and one of the most knowledgeable and insightful people that I know. Elon, thank you for joining me. Oh, sir. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a really remarkable moment. I can't quite imagine something more screwed up than this, where the president of the United States is describing the leader of Russia 
as a war criminal while the Russians are the chief negotiators with Iran. It strikes me as being kind of peculiar. I think that's a little bit of an understatement. Just for the edification of the listeners so they understand, the sanctions levied against Russia currently, everything from the de-swifting, the disconnection of Russia from the international electronic payment system, to sanctions against Russia's central bank, these are tremendously impactful sanctions. And the Russian economy has been very adversely affected by it. But at the same time, the Russians have a lifeline of sorts. And it's a lifeline that is built around their participation, in fact, their leadership in the current negotiations that are taking place in Vienna over the revival of the 2015 nuclear deal known as the JCPOA. Because Russia has been instrumental in bringing the Iranians to the table. As you pointed out, the United States is not at the table. We're sort of in the next room listening intently to the deliberations. But the Russians from the start have been orchestrating these negotiations. The Russians have also built in economic safeguards for themselves, which include sanctions-related carve-outs for things like civilian nuclear work. And it's very clear that even as the Biden administration talks about isolating Russia on the world stage, it is increasingly extensively reliant on Russia to bring home some sort of nuclear deal with Iran. And if this sounds peculiar, as you said, it's because it is. So as I understand it, when we had the original agreement, you had China, France, Germany, Russia, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Now, the Russians and the Chinese are negotiating with Iran. Are France, the United Kingdom, and Germany also in the room? So my understanding is that they are, and they're certainly talking to the Iranians behind the scenes, because one of the crucial dynamics that's taking place and has taken place for a long time is that the Trump administration's maximum pressure policy, the Iran sanctions and economic pressure policy that the Trump administration levied against the Islamic Republic when it took office in lieu of participation in the JCPOA, was not approved of by those countries. And those countries have been seeking a return to some sort of negotiating framework with Iran. And they've been quietly talking to the Iranians for a long time about resuming business as usual once maximum pressure goes away. And as a result, they are deeply invested and deeply involved in the current negotiations because they understand that if this goes well, if there is some sort of new nuclear deal with Iran and sanctions do come off, they stand to benefit. What I'm fascinated by is that this agreement was reached in 2015 and became famous in part because it involved us transferring a good bit of money to the Iranian dictatorship, including apparently a billion dollars in cash. A billion seven, I believe. A billion seven. Billion seven, but which was put on an airplane and apparently had to be either Swiss francs or euros because the Iranians would not accept dollars, which does lead the whole question of why are you negotiating with a country which won't even agree to be in the same room with you. But what surprised me when we went back and got ready to talk with you is that while the deal was agreed to on July 14th, 2015, as early as October 21st of the very same year, just a few months later, the United States raised Iran's ballistic missile test as a possible violation of the agreement. Then on November 21st, Iran tested another medium-range ballistic missile in violation of the agreement. On December 28th, the same year, 2015, Iran announced it shipped 8.5 tons 
of low-enriched uranium out of the country to Russia and received 140 tons of uranium yellow cake, which is a basic material for enrichment. Then on March 9th, 2016, Iran test launched two different variations of the medium-range ballistic missile. And finally, on January 28th, 2017, they fired a medium-range ballistic missile in defiance of the UN Security Council resolution. Already, even under the Obama administration, they were certainly pushing the limits of the agreement. And that's sort of the backdrop which led on May 8th, 2018, President Trump to announce that he was withdrawing from the agreement and that they had instituted sanctions on Iran and that the sanctions were much stricter than they had been before. Iran said in response it would remain in the deal which tightly restricted its nuclear ambitions for a decade or more. Why, in your judgment, did Biden decide to resurrect the deal? So I think there are a number of reasons. The first is, I think, probably the most obvious, although it doesn't get talked about a lot. It's because personnel is policy. And in the personage of the Secretary of State, of the Deputy Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, Wendy Sherman, in the personality of the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, the Special Envoy for Iran Affairs, Robert Malley. These are people who were principals in the negotiation of the first agreement, the 2015 deal under the Obama administration. And so the idea that the US under the Biden administration would go back into the deal was a bit of a foregone conclusion once staffing for the administration began to be known. Because these individuals are principal stakeholders in the original agreement. They're not likely now to do a 180 degree about face and say, well, that agreement was foolish. That agreement wasn't worth concluding in the first place. The problem with this, because it's very clear that the Biden administration is heavily invested in reviving the nuclear deal. And even here, it's worth pointing out that there were early hopes by the Biden administration that reinvigorating the 2015 deal would be the prelude to what Secretary Blinken talked about as a longer and stronger agreement, essentially a follow-on agreement that would lengthen the timeline on the nuclear restrictions that would constrain Iran in more ways. But that hasn't happened. What we actually have is an agreement that by all objective metrics is weaker than what we saw in 2015 for a very simple reason, because the region has moved on the regional dynamics are fundamentally different today in 2022 than they were in 2015. You see tremendous amounts of dynamism on the part of Israel and the Gulf nations. The so-called Abraham Accords trend is dynamic. It's progressing. It's bringing these countries closer together. And it's bringing them closer together in opposition to a common threat because Iran poses a threat to all of them. And so by seeking in a very dogged fashion to revive this agreement, even though the regional circumstance has changed, the Biden administration risks putting itself on the opposite side of these emerging trends in the region to essentially be tone deaf to what regional states and erstwhile allies of the United States are thinking in the region and to position itself with a country that's part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Do you think that that sense of A failed American policy that threatens their survival is a significant part of why neither Saudi Arabia nor the United Arab Emirates would accept a phone call from President Biden. Oh, absolutely. I think it's very clear. And I recently returned from the region. So I had some of these conversations with principals in places like Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. 
it's very clear from those conversations, from my interactions, that the region in many ways is moving past America, that there's been this sort of conclusion that the United States, at least under the current administration, is wedded to this unhelpful policy that will empower Iran anew. And therefore, the region has to make other plans. And that's why you see a bit of a diplomatic cold shoulder from Riyadh, a bit of a diplomatic cold shoulder from Abu Dhabi, but also developments like this growing proximity and growing warmth between the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and the government of the People's Republic of China, for example. This is all the region attempting to transition past America because it sees the United States as essentially pursuing a policy that doesn't reflect current regional realities. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Iran, I think, is still listed by the State Department as the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Absolutely right. Why would the Democrats be intent on making a country which is still openly supporting terrorism a central figure in the Middle East? What is it that drives this underlying passion now for two administrations? Well, I think that's really the central question. And I know it's something that I've puzzled over a tremendous amount. My sense was, at least in the initial going under the Obama administration, there was a sense that the Obama administration didn't know what to do with the Middle East. The Middle East was a problematic region. The Arab Spring was at its height. And that's why President Obama, beginning in late 2010, early 2011, talked about a pivot to Asia, essentially to turn away from the Middle East and to turn towards another region that holds more political promise, more economic promise. But you can't leave a political vacuum. And so this priority, this pivot to Asia, very naturally led the Biden administration to try to find a deputy, a country that could carry America's water in the absence of a strong, robust American presence. How they decided that Iran was that deputy is beyond me, to be honest, because of precisely what you mentioned, because of Iran's long, consistent track record of support for terrorism and regional instability. But that was precisely the formula that the Obama administration constructed. and. Candidly, it's the formula that the Biden administration is pursuing as well. So you now have the Biden administration, as I understand it, seriously considering removing the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps from the State Department's foreign terrorist organization list. That's the group whose leader, Soleimani, we killed because he was such a consistent organizer of terror. Why would you take them off the list of terrorist organizations You know, President Trump in April 2019 designated the IRGC as a foreign terrorist organization saying, quote, it participates in finances and promotes terrorism as a tool of statecraft. What's the advantage to the U.S. of pretending they're not terrorists? Well, the only political advantage is that it brings the Biden administration closer to some sort of agreement with Iran. The delisting of the IRGC, as they're known by their acronym, has been for a long time a core demand of the Iranian side at these proximity talks that are taking place in Vienna. And there's a very good reason for this, not only for prestige purposes, but also because the IRGC is a major, major economic actor in the Islamic Republic. For a long time, for example, the IRGC's construction headquarters, which is known as Hatam al was the principal subcontractor for post-conflict reconstruction in Iraq. And layers upon layers of U.S. sanctions, including the listing of them as a foreign terrorist organization under U.S. law, has really put a crimp in their style, so to speak. So I think it's incorrect to say that 
the delisting, doing this is simply a symbolic move to inject confidence in the Iranian side. I think it actually has very significant practical effects, legal effects, economic effects. But it also sends, for all of our allies in the region, precisely the wrong message. Because as you pointed out, Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terror. It has been for years. And the IRGC are the agent. They are the branch of the regime that is responsible for this sort of activity. So the signal that we send by turning a blind eye to this is, I think, foolish in the extreme. So I know you just came back from the region and you've been speaking with Israeli experts and scholars and defense analysts. I mean, what is the Israeli view about this whole negotiation? Well, this was, I think, one of the most fascinating sets of conversations that I had when I was in the region. Because in Israel, there is a profound sense of disbelief, almost betrayal on the part of Israeli officials who simply can't understand why the Biden administration is so doggedly pursuing this agreement. And I think this is important to highlight. It's also causing the Israeli national security and defense establishment to begin contingency planning. We're not just talking about an independent military option against Iran, which is something that has sort of been floated in the press and been talked about in Israel and in the United States for a long time. They're also having a secondary debate, which is, I think, enormously consequential, because more and more scholars and public intellectuals in Israel are now beginning to talk about the need to reposition their nuclear posture. Israel, for years, has been pursuing a policy of nuclear ambiguity in which it has failed to confirm that it is a nuclear power, even though it's commonly understood to be one. Increasingly, there are scholars in Israel who are saying that Israel needs to come out of the nuclear closet, because only by doing that, only by showing its cards, so to speak, can it set up something resembling a stable balance of terror with the Islamic Republic of Iran, because America is not going to stop Iran's nuclear program. And that nuclear program has progressed so far that it's far too mature and far too distributed and far too resilient to be eliminated outright by a military strike. So Israel has to create some sort of contingency plan, and that involves good old-fashioned deterrence. So in that context, the Israelis would accept that there was a mortal danger from Iran, but would, in effect, be threatening to take out Tehran or the other major cities if the Iranians acted against Israel. I mean, is that a shorthand? That's the shorthand. That's the theory. And parenthetically, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a strategy that I think is a good strategy from my perspective, because it presumes rationality on the part of the Iranian leadership, rationality under all circumstances. Because if we remember, the idea of a balance of terror was floated during the Cold War in terms of our nuclear strategy vis-a-vis the Soviet Union, because we presumed rationality on the part of Soviet leadership. And there were many scholars, including people like Richard Pipes, who wrote about the idea that the Soviets actually think that they can fight and win a nuclear war. And I think there's a danger that we have in assuming that the Iranians will act in a very predictable, very rational manner under all circumstances. I don't necessarily think that this is a winning strategy, but it does show you the lengths to which the Israelis are going to because they understand that this is a problem that has festered for a long time, and it's a problem without an easy solution. And so they're trying to think of ways to square the circle. Of course, in both Iraq and Syria, their reaction was to preemptively take out the facilities. Do they now think that that's not possible in Iran? It's interesting because I think that there has been a 
tendency on the part of multiple U.S. administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike, to negotiate with Iran while keeping this presumed Israel card in their back pocket. The idea that Israel is the only country in the world to have denuclearized two countries, Iraq in the 1980s, Syria in 2007. And as a result, if negotiations don't go well, the Israelis will take care of our Iran problem too. And for just as long, the Israelis have been desperately trying to convince Washington that they really don't want to do this. And they don't want to do this because Iran is not Iraq. Iran is not Syria. It is a massively larger geographic space. It is a nuclear program that is much more spread out, much more hardened, much more mature than those other programs were. And that's why Israeli officials, on the rare occasions they do talk about this, they never talk about denuclearization. They only talk about delay. That's their concession to the idea that they may not know where all the facilities are. They may not know where all the nuclear skeletons are buried. And as a result, they tend to talk about mowing the grass, to use an Israeli euphemism, to set back the Iranian nuclear program by a period of time rather than eliminating it outright. And they've done a good bit of that with a variety of amazing operations, one of which, if I understand it correctly, involved going in and taking out an entire warehouse of records without the Iranians knowing it. I mean, it's the sort of thing that really is like a classic spy novel. That's exactly right. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market. 
as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The other part of this, which is, I think, in some ways even more bizarre than the negotiation with Iran, is the whole process of relying on the Russians and the Russians, in effect, charging a pretty high premium for delivering. I mean, here you have Biden saying that Putin is a butcher, he is a murderer, he's a war criminal, he should be tried for his war crimes. Meanwhile, it's the Russians who are actually the primary negotiators in this deal, and the Russians want to charge us some pretty substantial goodies that would, in effect, violate all of the tough sanctions that Biden talks about and make a joke out of the sanctions. How do you follow the bouncing ball in understanding this? Candidly, with great difficulty, because it doesn't make any sense on an objective level. The idea that the Russians will still be stewards of America's interests and will still do what we want them to do while we are on a different front sanctioning their economy, isolating their leaders, calling their leaders war criminals. The idea that the Russians will still carry our water reliably and bring home an agreement with Iran is, I think, foolish in the extreme. And if that does happen, it actually tells you something. It tells you that whatever agreement transpires in Vienna, whatever agreement the Russians can nudge the Iranians into accepting, it's one that serves Moscow's interests. And these days, Moscow's interests and Washington's interests are significant, if not diametrically opposed. And as a result, any deal that Moscow likes, I would take a hard look at. I mean, in a sense, it seems to me the Biden administration is saying that the Iranian deal is more important than the attack on Ukraine. That's certainly the message that a lot of Russians are taking away from this. And as I understand it, part of the deal will be for the Russian energy company Rosatom to have a $10 billion contract with Iran outside the sanctions. That's right. That's the civilian nuclear carve-out that I talked about. So you have strong talk at the White House, but in Vienna, we're in fact relying on the Russians to deliver. No, that's right. And the interesting thing to me is the extent to which 
there doesn't seem to be a lot of realization on the part of the White House that these two policies cannot be siloed off, cannot be walled off from one another. In fact, that what's happening in Vienna and the concessions that we're giving to the Iranians, including the civilian nuclear cooperation with Russia, are diametrically opposed to the types of pressure that the president says he wants to apply on the Kremlin to forestall any future military adventurism on the part of Vladimir Putin. So the signals that we're sending are decidedly mixed. And if the Russians are confused in terms of watching our foreign policy, I think they have good reason to be. I mean, do you think the White House writ large, that is the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, the President, do you think they have any notion of how they're undermining themselves? I think that's a good question. I certainly can't speak to their frame of mind. I can tell you that from the outside, myself and my colleagues and people who watch this fairly closely, the question has come up again and again, how exactly does the White House believe it can follow the Russia policy that it has articulated and follow the Iran policy it has articulated simultaneously? Because they are really running in opposite directions. Assuming that the administration is so determined that it's going to get something no matter how bad it is, because then they'll be able to claim, look, we got a deal. Is there anything Congress can do to stop that? I think that's a key question. And it's especially a key question where we are now in an election year, because there's a tremendous amount that Congress can do if it's incentivized to do so, to push back against the Biden administration's Iran policy ranging from the application of additional sanctions on Iran to the disaggregation of the Biden administration's policy, to really take a look at the New Deal, to take a look at what loopholes may exist, to apply additional pressure, to make sure there's robust congressional oversight over the agreement, to hold the White House's feet to the fire and force it to bring the agreement for review in front of Congress. And so there are things that Congress can do. And you're beginning to see more and more members of Congress in both the House and the Senate talk about the need for a more robust pushback on the Biden administration's Iran policy. And I think all of that is going to be reinforced by the latest polling numbers. The new McLaughlin poll, which is just out in the last couple of days, shows that two-thirds of Americans, roughly, do not trust Iran. Two-thirds of Americans do not believe that negotiations are a good idea, and by roughly the same proportion, that increased sanctions are the proper way to address Iran. That's all, I think, meet for members of Congress and a message that they'll carry forward. In that sense also, I would think that given the current growing hostility to the viciousness and the barbarism of the Russian attack on Ukraine and the things like the mass graves and the mass murders, that a congressional provision that no sanctions can be waived in an Iran deal would have a fair chance of actually potentially getting to a veto override. I think that's exactly right. As we move forward in time, as we see exactly how weak the new, what I would like to call the JCPOA minus, because it's shorter and weaker than the original JCPOA even, as we see the true contours of this agreement, the appetite on the part of the legislative branch to really push back, to really force an up or down vote, to really examine the contours of this new agreement, I think is only set to increase. That's a good thing because objectively, we are seeing the 
contours of a very weak, very detrimental agreement. And sunlight is the best disinfectant. If by some miracle, the Biden administration actually called you and said, so what should we do about Iran? What would you tell them? So I think the center of gravity in the Iran debate has never been about the regime. It's always been about the Iranian people. Look, Iran is a country of 85 million people. Two thirds of them are 35 or younger, which means that they weren't born or they weren't politically aware at the time of the Ayatollah Khomeini's Islamic Revolution back in 1979. And that's why you see on the part of Iranians, the Iranian population itself, a tremendous amount of discontent with the current regime. They're not with the ideological agenda. They are interested in things that they see other countries having, right? Iran is not a hermit kingdom the way North Korea is. It's a very tech savvy, very wired, very connected place. And that's why you see this groundswell of popular discontent, because in real actual terms, Iranians are one third poorer than they were in 1979. And that sort of failure to thrive has real consequences. And that's why you see the sustained protests that have been taking place in Iran since the winter of 2017. It's why you see the regime acting more and more brutally to suppress them. And it's also why you see the Iranian opposition, which is very disorganized, very disaggregated, beginning to coalesce around the idea that this regime is an irreformable construct and it must be jettisoned, it has to be discarded. And so when you take this sort of backdrop as a prelude, you have to understand that for these opponents of the regime, both within Iran and outside Iran, what they see the Biden administration doing is deeply demoralizing. They see the Biden administration as functionally propping up a decrepit, out of touch and repressive regime. And so to me, the center of gravity is that young population that is going to inherit Iran over the next several years, because whether or not there is a revolution, whatever political transition transpires, there is going to be a demographic changeover as the increasingly old, aging, and infirm clerical regime passes from the scene. Something new is coming. I think the long game for the United States has always been about making sure that the long arc of Iranian policy, of Iranian attitudes towards the West, is not fundamentally altered by something that we do. That's great. Listen, Ilan, thank you for joining me and for having this very productive conversation. I think the work you do, and you know this, I've been a great admirer of your ability to synthesize and bring together information from all over the world. And you and your team at the American Foreign Policy Council, I think, do a remarkable job, as you know. We're very grateful for being able to work with you, and Callista and I have traveled with you. I just really appreciate taking the time today to help us better understand the Iran nuclear deal negotiations, and I look forward to opportunities in the future. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime, and thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guest, Elon Berman. You can learn more about the Iran nuclear deal negotiations on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three 
free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.